um, here we are again. And some of us haven't been here for a while. And yet, it still feels like we're meeting here again. We're meeting here again. And for what? For what? And Tignatan calls this a path to nowhere. And which sounds kind of bleak, we can say to nowhere but here. To nowhere but here. And what does that mean? And somehow this action of stopping and being still and attentive together is supposed to lead us towards the truth, towards a deeper truth. And what can that possibly mean when things are so changeable? I saw a picture of Joan Didion, the writer, young, glamorous looking in this photo, smoking a cigarette languidly. And, and she writes, I've already lost touch with a couple of people I used to be. And that was at a young age. And I know exactly what she means, don't you? There are postures and attitudes that seem so weird to me now. And, and just not me anymore. So what is this truth that we're meant to grasp or that something in us longs for? What can it be when things are so changeable? so impermanent and we owe each other the truth that's what Maya Angelou tells me I was reading her today but what can that mean and of course there are all kinds of truths that we begin to discover about ourselves about life about our deepest wish for ourselves and in Buddhism, they have something called the five remembrances. The five remembrances. And you don't have to take notes. You don't have to worry about this. But you have to picture hearing these with a great big huge gong sounding as I once did when I sat with Thich Nhat Hanh, the first remembrance is that I will grow old. I cannot escape aging, gong. I will get sick. I cannot escape illness, gong. I will die. I cannot escape death. I will be separated from all that is dear and beloved to me. And by now you might be thinking, thanks a lot, Tracy. That's exactly why I tuned in. It just made my otherwise 
depressing day seemed fatal. And I'm not speaking for you. Maybe you had a lovely day. So these are the four inescapable truths that we spend our lives trying to escape. What is the fifth? The fifth remembrance is that all beings are heirs to their karma, to their actions, small and large, from the level of thought to wish to the largest actions. As Jignan said, these are the echoes in the mountains of your life. So this might sound kind of somber, but before you tune out, I want to share something that I really found to be true and vital. Awakening is like waking up in the middle of the night. Awakening is like waking up in the middle of the night. In those moments when all your habitual thinking, that racing, that momentum to find a solution, to find a way to be happy, is, is just transparently not working. And you become still. Still in the sense of letting go. And something appears sometimes that will change your life. You will discover in a moment that what you deep down seek, what you yearn for, is not a solution, not a thought, but an action, a particular kind of action, not booking that ticket to Bangkok, an action in your heart, in your heart-mind, an opening and a dropping in to the depths of your own life. The sensation of being present, of being alive, of being open, of being here. And suddenly you discover, and it can just be for the most fleeting moment, all those quotes about how the privilege of a lifetime is to become who you truly are, as Carl Jung put it. Thomas Merton had his version that he discovered in the end that his greatest ambition was to be himself. Suddenly, we know that that self is huge, it's spacious, it's loving, it's vibrant, and it's part of a greater life. The path of awakening, as the Dalai Lama put it, is to discover that there is a hidden door inside suffering 
right in the midst of it. This is not a path for avoiding suffering and being all sunny and positive. It's not a path for running from these truths that we try, we are driven to avoid. It's a path of discovering that inside that acceptance, there is passage to a new life. During World War II, during the bombing of London, children were routinely evacuated to the countryside to be safe. Among them were four children in a family who were sent by train to stay with an aloof professor who wasn't much used to having children. Do you know where I'm going with this? So the children were quite lonely in this country house and they would play hide and seek. And one day, the littlest girl of the four found an enormous wardrobe, a big freestanding closet in a room and climbed inside and pushed aside all the fur coats and things that people wear in England and found a secret door and pushed it open and entered a new land where she was met by this magical fawn. Or in another story that I love that I watched early in the pandemic when I felt so dispirited and afraid, a little Japanese girl displaced to the countryside to live in an old house near the hospital where her mother was in long-term care for an illness. Is very lonely. Her sister goes to school and pushes into the darkness and the roots of a camphor tree and discovers within a benevolent spirit named Totoro. In all of these stories, and think about, I want you to think about lying in bed at 3 a.m. For me, it's typically 3 a.m. It could be 2, it could be some other time. But one of those times when it's too late and too early, too early to get up, too late to do anything. And you're lying there and you're being with maybe your deepest loneliness or your deepest fear of the future and your deepest unaddressed sense. Oh my goodness, I'm so afraid to die. Oh my goodness, I'm so afraid to grow old. Oh my goodness, life is so impermanent, slipping through my fingers. 
and notice what it's like in those moments when you let yourself be completely still, like right now. Right now, as if you're lying in bed, sensing the body and its life. Sensing all the feelings within you without trying to name them. Knowing your innocent aliveness. You can feel it. There's a willingness inside you, inside all of us, to be here. Something wishes to be here. To be here, to be alive. To participate in life and be part of it. And realize that in that moment, you're in the presence of what the Sufis called the friend. The friend with a capital F. You're in the benevolent presence of Totoro. Or in the kingdom of Narnia. In that moment, you're discovering that you are so much more than you fear, than you're thinking. In that moment, you discover that you are one with a force of compassion and wisdom and life. Compassion means responsiveness. It does. It means the quivering of the heart in response to suffering and also in response to joy, in response to life. That you are part of all this. That life is here with you. And there is a quote. Now I've lost it, so I'll just Rumi. Rumi said, to not fear the future, that person I would worship. To not fear the future. So this is a practice for being still, for dropping down into our own benevolent depths, sinking beneath fight, flight, freeze, and there are two more, fawning and feigning, all that stuff we do, dropping beneath that, to know for a heartbeat or two, for a breath or two, that we are part of life and love and safe in it, in its presence. So let's sit together. Take a comfortable seat. And let your eyes close and just notice how it feels to be you today. 
to be having this experience today. And don't think about it. Don't think about it. Just, just let it appear. And see that this attention inside you can soften you. And let the attention just sink from head into the body. Don't don't change anything. Don't strive for any better experience. Let the effort be effortless, a willingness to let everything be. Just like this. Let yourself rest in stillness. Notice how it feels to let everything, even tender feelings, edges, be completely acceptable, completely okay.
resting in stillness, noticing the life inside you. And outside. the presence inside and outside. That sees and holds what is arising without judging. And when you find your thinking or dreaming, notice this with no judgment and gently come back again to sensation, to the sensation of being present.
and see the coming home to sensation opens you. You begin to remember that you belong to life. And notice that when you feel lost, lost in thinking, you can always come back to the body, to sensation, and to a presence that sees and senses without judging.
noticing that this movement of return, of coming home to presence, opens your life. Notice how it feels to be completely acceptable to an attention that sees without judging, with curiosity and kindness.
noticing how it feels to be still. To let everything be without striving. Thank you for your stillness, for your willingness to open for your practice. And if you have any questions or observations about practice, we'd love to hear them. I'm not sure if I can articulate the question quite right, but I'm going to try. When you said, when I think you said, um, come back to the sensation of presence or of being present, and then at other times, being present with sensation. So I was finding that, um, it's interesting today, just the way I was hearing it, it was a little, I was feeling confused about well, what is... <clears throat> What is the sensation of being present versus being present with sensation? So that's kind of part of the question. But I found that I was having difficulty being with sensations today because it was like they were like all these jumpy and then there was a suffocated moment you know, where I felt suffocated or really a lot of uncomfortable feelings and I was thinking, well, um, I can notice the sensations for a moment or two, but then they're so uncomfortable that they take me, you know, in order to try to bring that kindness, then I go into my head and think kindness. 
you know, in order to kind of access that kind feeling. Anyway, those are some of my thoughts about what I'm dealing with. I'm not quite sure what the question is, but any comments that you might have about, you know, that presence, being present with sensation, the sensation to presence and et cetera. Um, one of the most radical things about this practice and the teaching of the Buddha is that its ultimate goal is not peace. It's not positivity. It's not joy. It's awakening. It's awakening. And the, the constant and radical invitation is to be with everything that arises so that we become, we're not afraid of our fear or our anger or our discomfort. It's, some, it's like a, a, a bell. It's something that calls us to investigate. And um, always the first step practically is acceptance, this radical acceptance, so that if you're confused, what does she mean? Which is it? Make up your mind, Tracy. Um, or uncomfortable feelings coming up. I don't like this. I'm feeling suffocated. This can't be good. Whatever is coming up. In that moment, and I've done this even with moments of great rage, rage, I refuse to reject my experience. I even said that. I refuse to reject you. I refuse to reject you. So my action in that moment, whether it's I'm confused, I don't know if I'm following the direction because the direction seems to be changing or I'm uncomfortable in my body. You're, you're called in both those instances and in so many more to open, to accept. So it's like, oh, this is interesting. Confusion is coming up. I'm seeing my mind trying to do the math. Or this is interesting. Great discomfort's coming up. And I see how I'm contracting against it. And that's the practice. And I will tell you, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but it will change. It will change. I've had experiences that filled me with fear. I mean, close to terror. And because it would feel like the sudden awful reckoning coming up, you know. And like I was just busted, finally, and cornered. And one day, and it didn't come quickly, but one day I had the simplest, lightest observation. This is my mind freaking out 
about a state that's arising in my body. Just that. But just that was like a door opening. That it wasn't a reckoning. There was no grim tribunal of judges. It was an experience of an old belief encountering a stream of feeling and giving way. So it's like that. And in terms of, of the language changing, sensation of presence or presence of sensation, see that those are just words. That, that someone is pointing you again and again towards the sensation of being present in a body. And sometimes that's just a moment of sensation. And sometimes it's as if a door opens and you're in a state of presence, but you don't need to worry about it. Because those are just words. And what you're doing is an action. It's an action that we repeat and it changes and it takes on different colors and meanings. Does that help? I don't know yet. <laughs> okay, that's a good, that's a very honest answer. Yeah, and sometimes it can be like just words, like warm bath water kind of washing over you, and maybe you get it, maybe you don't, maybe she knows what she's talking about, maybe she doesn't. Right, well, one of the tricky things is in when I engage, in order to be more, well, not to be more, to be able to be with the sensations that are difficult, um, I engaged my mind, you know, such as just try to be with this or just be kind or whatever. But then I was involved in my mind. So. Yeah, we do that. And that's the first thing to see that notice how you deal with difficulty and suffering. Typically, we go up into our heads. And that's something that made this whole thing worth it. If you see it, this is what we do. We fly up into our heads and try to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And it, it's not to be figured out, it's to be experienced. And I just want to share one little story. It's so great. I'm friends with a woman who used to be a Buddhist nun, Tanisara. And this is one of her favorite stories about the great uh, teacher, Ajahn Chah. And others have told this story as well. Her husband, Kitasara, and others. Anyway, Ajahn Chah is this revered forest monk. And one of the first to teach Westerners this practice that we're doing, 
And he was just, scholars would come from everywhere, and everybody sat with him, Jack Cornfield among them. So he had a nun who was just absolutely devoted to him, but somewhere along the line, she became a born-again Christian. So that this huge group of people from Oxford came to meet Ajahn Chah. And Tanisara was mortified because this nun was now talking about how Ajahn Chah was the devil. And would anyone who followed his teaching would go straight to hell and on and on like this. And so they went to Ajahn Chah. How embarrassing. What timing. And can't we silence her? from saying all this stuff. And he said, maybe she's right. Maybe she's right. And it was just this mind-blowing moment of not being concerned. The mind is always trying to land on certainty. It's always trying to know. The problem with the mind is that everything it knows is in the past. And we're opening to an experience that is present. It's unknown. It's never appeared before. It's right now. So again and again and again and again, we have to see the working of the mind, the way it constantly grasps and constantly applies what is past to what's here. Um, a great teacher of mine once said, even our desires are rooted in the past, which completely blew my mind. To see that so much of what I think I long for is based on something from long ago. And when you consider, like, what Joan Didion said, she's lost track. We've lost track of a couple of people we used to be, but we're still dragging their desires with us. How strange. How strange. And what would it feel like to let that go? just for a moment. To let go of who we used to be and what we used to want. And all that grasping for certainty to just be completely soft for one moment. Just accepting the unknown.
have a question, Tracy. I haven't had this experience very often, but I, um, there were a couple of things you mentioned today that are very relevant to something that I'm experiencing now. Um, one is the idea of karma and that middle of the night, three o'clock in the morning thing, and also contraction and expansion. Yeah. Um, and so I had, I had an experience of something, I was trying to help somebody and I, kind of messed up. It didn't help. And I think it might have hurt more than helped. That wasn't my intention. Um, but as I stepped away from it and became aware that I might have made a mistake and messed up in my attempt to help, um, it's, it's just excruciating to me. Like I can't, I can't stand it. I just can't stand it. And it's, um, it's like I, this thing won't leave me. And at three o'clock in the morning, I'm waking up and it's, it's, I don't know if everybody's had this experience of like, I just want to, I want to go back in time and just change that one moment. Like, I can't stand that I can't change it. I can't go back and fix it. Um, and sometimes when I'm in meditation or when I can be present to, very challenging feelings and I open or soften in that I can find an opening and an acceptance somehow of this thing. But in the moment I'm feeling like the awareness of the contraction is contracting me more. And I'm just like, it's, it's becoming this, it's becoming the contraction. I have become the contraction, if you know what I mean. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I haven't had that before, so I don't, I don't know, don't know what to do with it. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's, um, it's a torment, and a real torment, and I can relate, and to that feeling, and um, um, first of all, one thing is trust impermanence that one feeling that comes up at three in the morning and okay this is really important there are experiences we have and they're always typically really painful ones like the one you describe of regret and we feel like they will never end we impute them with a kind of permanence because it's just so bad. It's so bad for us. And I once, um, and if you've heard this before, never mind, I'm going to say it again. I had a chance to sit with Jignat Han and ask him personally, well, I threw it in the big bell, the question, why do people cling to their worst suffering? So notice that all of us, when it's that most painful thing, like I have ruined something, that is the thing that feels like it will be permanent and defining. Define, that defines us. And Thich Nhat Hanh was like, interesting question, which we, I liked hearing, but he said, people cling to what's strongest 
or what feels like it's strongest. And what feels strongest in us typically is our pain. And for a long time. So he told this story in that moment to me that when you would sit with him, which no longer we can do, but when you go on retreat, he would have these Vietnam vets who would come in their tattered old uniforms and follow him. And it was incredibly wrenching to see, do walking meditation and see these people who couldn't put the war behind them coming to him for some peace for their 3 a.m.s. So he said he had one man who would carry a hammock, this rotting hammock on his back because he shot someone in the hammock in Vietnam, a woman, Viet Cong. And he could not forgive himself. He couldn't get over screwing up like that, doing that thing. And when we, sometimes we feel we get, when we do something, we feel like it's like we've killed something. And we cannot get over it. And Thich Nhat Hanh told me, told all of us, that he finally encouraged, he had a great big bonfire built on the beach and encouraged this man to put that rope hammock in the fire and let it burn, to let it go. And other people were putting other things in the fire. And it and I've loved that story for years. And it, because it doesn't define, but it's like this Lisa, this is a practice for slowly coming to open and accept and even love our humanity, our full humanity. And that we're constantly screwing up. I mean, many is the night when, I mean, just opening my mouth here, I have to go have a stiff scotch just because it's so mortifying <laughs> to be human and to have these things wafting out of my mouth. It's because we're human. And we have such a powerful wish to help and to participate and to be part of it and to do good. And, and we just keep constantly, or at least a good number of times, doing this stuff. And it's waking up going, oh my God, I will never get past this one. Not this one. Because what it reveals about me is so, it's beyond embarrassment. It feels always when we're working. I have wondered so often, why do we have to touch the depths before we can be touched by something higher? 
And it's almost like those seeds that break open in the fire. That, that I have to learn how to love this fool. This person to begin to see that, yes, we're like this. And we also have these extraordinary forces of love and compassion that pass through. You are completely lovable, completely acceptable, completely belonging, and worthy of belonging to life. And what we really do, I think, when we practice is slowly, slowly, slowly come to trust that. And as we come to close, it's like you've done something I can see and feel for all of us here, like putting the hammock in the fire. Because we all have our three hams. It's time to um, conclude for, for now. Please come back. Please keep sitting. And we'll take one moment to sit quietly with eyes closed and just notice. Notice how it feels to be completely acceptable. Not what you judge to be acceptable. Completely, completely. And knowing that this is our practice, we let it shine out, including ourselves and radiating beyond to all beings everywhere with no exception. May all beings everywhere feel safe and protected from harm and danger. May all beings everywhere know that they're acceptable and lovable and needed and forgivable and completely worthy of freedom in every way. May all beings everywhere be free. Thank you for your practice. Thank you so much.